Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for February 2019. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month, or in this case the last couple of months. So welcome back to 2019 and it has been a big month in February. So let's start with the EPVENT2 study group's publication in JAMA, Effect of Titrating PEEP with an Esophageal Pressure Guided Strategy versus an Empirical High PEEP FiO2 Strategy on Death and Days Free from Mechanical Ventilation among Patients with ARDS. That's a big title. So optimizing PEEP, the editorial accompanying this RCT sets the scene perfectly. When Ashbale derived or described ARDS over 50 years ago, PEEP was framed as an intervention to improve oxygenation, a temporizing measure while underlying lung injury resolve. We've come a long way since then. We understand that ventilation provides support while pathology resolves, but that it also injures lungs through pressure and volume-mediated trauma. As a result, optimising PEEP has a dual purpose, improving oxygenation and preventing ventilation-induced lung injury. The theoretical goal is minimise atelectasis by decreasing cyclical lung opening and closing through aeration with end expiratory pressure while avoiding over distension through its effect on the variable effects of driving pressure on aerated and non-aerated lung. The optimal hemodynamic effect also needs to be considered balancing effect on venous return and preload and intrathoracic pressure and afterload. The evidence to date is not entirely clear in ARDS. High versus low PEEP strategies have variable effects in trials, although individual patient meta-analysis suggests high PEEP is a benefit. However, the best combination and escalation of PEEP, driving pressure and FiO2 remain unclear. Can we do better if we measure lung mechanics more carefully? What if transpulmonary pressure gradient is measured that is pleural pressure as measured with esophageal pressure minus airway pressure and PEEP titrated to reduce pressure gradient lung that it is exposed to. In a prior single centre randomised trial, the EPVENT trial, uh, esophageal pressure guided PEEP titration was compared to ARDS network PEEP FiO2 titration and was associated with higher PF ratios, higher respiratory system compliance, and improved adjusted survival. However, this was a single centre study. Uh, it involved a range of ARDS severities, and it used a control strategy with lower PEEP than in recent trials. Thus, the EPVENT2 study was conducted. So in this randomised clinical trial, titration of PEEP according to lung mechanics using esophageal pressure was compared to an empirical high PEEP fraction of inspired oxygen strategy in 200 supine patients with moderate to severe ARDS. The trial details, uh, it was moderate to severe ARDS, so PF of less than 200, with onset in less than 36 hours 
and all for Berlin criteria. 200 patients were randomized to esophageal pressure versus high peak FIO2 strategy. All received single recruitment maneuvers of 35 centimeters of water, breath for 30 seconds. Uh, sedation, neuromuscular blocking, resuscitation was physician driven. The protocol continued for 28 days or uh, until protocol failure or breathing unassisted or death withdrawal. In the esophageal pressure group, the pressure lung pressure was measured that's airway and esophageal pressure waveforms at end inspiration and end expiratory breath at baseline and at least once daily so peak was adjusted to aim for a lung pressure end expiratory of zero to six centimeters of water and if lung pressure end experience end expiratory was greater than 20 centimeters of water tidal volume was decreased to as low as four mils per kilo predicted body weight uh, it could go up to a total of 8 mils per kilo predicted body weight if lung pressure and expiratory remained less than 20 centimetres of water. In the high peak FiO2 titration group, peak was adjusted to achieve the lowest peak FiO2 combination using the ARDSNET table. The treating team were blinded to lung pressure measurements and tidal volume could be decreased to 4 mils per kilo predicted body weight if plateau pressure was greater than 35 centimetres of water. So the groups were well matched at baseline, uh, there was good protocol adherence, and the primary outcome, which was a composite of death and days free from mechanical ventilation through to day 28, was no different. So what else was there? Well, in terms of mortality, it was 32% versus 31% at day 28, no difference, and no difference at day 60 or one year. There was no difference in rescue therapy, no difference in pneumothorax or bronchopural fistula. There was a difference in acute uh, kidney injury by day 28. It was 21% in the esophageal group compared to 33% in the high peak group. Now, in terms of ventilation changes, there were not significant differences in peak changes on initiation of the protocol. However, the esophageal pressure group had highest peak of 36 centimetres of water compared to 24 centimetres of water for the high peak FiO2 group. There was no differences in lung pressure over the first seven days, although the rate of decline in end expiratory lung pressure from day one to seven was slower in the esophageal pressure group. So overall, these findings do not support the use of esophageal pressure measurement instead of empirical high peak FiO2 strategy to guide PEEP titration in patients with moderate to severe ARDS. Now this doesn't mean that esophageal pressure is of no use because in practice the PEEP FiO2 strategy resulted in the same transpulmonary pressures or lung pressures as the esophageal pressure group. So perhaps it simply tells us that standard PEEP adjustment tables are safe and effective as the more invasive esophageal measurement strategies. Let's stick with JAMA and move on to something a bit different, which is the Hoppy trial investigators uh, effect of a nurse led preventative psychological intervention on symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder among critically ill patients. So have you ever stood at the bedside and wondered if 
ICU nursing or ICU medical staff had the ability to deliver psychological support, that is cognitive behavioural therapy or CBT. And if they did this, would it reduce patient anxiety and possibly improve outcomes? There is some evidence that CBT delivered by clinical psychologists reduces symptoms of stress in patients with mental and physical illness and that CBT can be delivered by non-experts, including nurses. So the POPPY trials puts all of this together in an ICU setting. So this multi-centre, parallel group, cluster randomised clinical trial in 24 UK adult ICUs enrolled 1,458 patients with an ICU length of stay greater than 48 hours receiving level three care, which is what they call it in the UK, it seems. That's sort of ICU level care for two or more organ systems. ICUs were allocated to three steps, which is groups of eight, and in each step randomized one-to-one to intervention or control in the second month of the baseline period. Now in the intervention, a nurse-led preventative complex psychological intervention delivered to critically ill patients and initiated in the intensive care unit was delivered. This included online training for ICU nurses and all front-facing staff in promotion of therapeutic environments. It also included an additional component which was stress support for high-risk patients and this was delivered by a cohort of ICU nurses who received additional training consisting of a three-day course. High-risk patients were offered three one-on-one 30-minute CBT sessions. And the usual care group received no specific psychological support. At baseline, they were well-matched. The median time from enrolment was seven to nine days across groups. The intervention delivery, so 58% of staff completed the online training by the end of the transition period and all achieved 80% by the intervention period three-month date. Of the eligible high-risk patients in the intervention ICUs, 64% received three stress support sessions, while 9% received none. The primary outcome was mean patient-reported PTSD severity using the PTSD symptom scale report tool, the PSSSR, and the score ranges from 0 to 51, with the highest score being more severe, and it was performed in survivors at six months. And there was no significant difference in this score between the intervention group and the usual care group, and there was no difference in any secondary outcome. Post hoc analysis reported a decrease in STAI scores from 49 to 40 in those who received three stress support sessions. Overall, a nurse-led preventative multi-step psychological intervention did not improve psychological or secondary outcomes in critically ill adults. So why? It may simply be an ineffective intervention or it could be more nuanced than this. So first of all, is it the right outcome? PTSD is a diverse cluster of symptoms. Perhaps we need to look for more targeted outcomes. 
Is the intervention delivered at the right dose, the right time and the right strength? So should it be delivered earlier or later in the ICU stay? Is staff online training enough to change the patient environment? And is three by 30 minute CBT sessions for the high risk patients enough, particularly as only 64% of them received all three of those sessions? Should this be delivered to a higher risk population? So in this study, which is sort of all ICU patients who had a duration of stay that was long enough, the incidence of PTSD was 20%. Should be looking for a group in who the incidence is higher and concentrate on them. And finally, what about relatives or caregivers? Are there possible benefits to them? But overall, this is a really interesting study and it's a great start in terms of looking at uh, CBT interventions in the ICU. Okay, let's go to the New England Journal of Medicine, Adjunctive Intermittent Pneumatic Compression for Venous Thromboprophylaxis. So, the incidence of DVT in critical illness is 5 to 20% despite pharmacological thromboprophylaxis. Mechanical thromboprophylaxis reduces DVT incidence compared to no thromboprophylaxis. But does intermittent mechanical add to pharmacological thromboprophylaxis in critical illness? That is, are both better than one? The PREVENT trial, the pneumatic compression for preventing venous thromboembolism, was an investigator-initiated, pragmatic, international, multi-centre, randomized controlled trial that evaluated whether adjunctive intermittent pneumatic compression in critically ill patients receiving pharmacological thromboprophylaxis with unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin would result in a lower incidence of proximal lower limb DVT than pharmacological thromboprophylaxis alone. Get it? So, 20 ICUs in Saudi Arabia Canada, Australia, and India. Adult and medical and surgical ICU patients expect to stay at least 72 hours in ICU with no contraindication to unfractionated or low-inoculated heparin who are enrolled within 48 hours of ICU admission. 2,003 patients were randomized to the pneumatic compression group plus pharmacological or the pharmacological group alone. The compression group received devices for at least 18 hours per day and the sleeves were removed every eight hours for skin inspection. Devices were discontinued when DVT or PE was suspected or confirmed, ulcers or ischemia were observed or palliation intended. In the control group, compression devices were only permitted during interruption of pharmacological therapy. Outcome measurement was performed by certified sonographic assessment using compressibility of both lower limbs within 48 hours and then twice weekly and on suspicion of DVT. PE assessment was performed at the discretion of physicians. At baseline that was similar, this was an 80% medical sort of 15% surgical study. In terms of treatment, the intermittent pneumatic compression was applied for a medium of 22 hours daily for a medium of seven days and used in 98% of patients. The primary outcome, which was new lower limb proximal DVT, was 3.9% in the pneumatic compression group versus 4.2% in the control group, relative risk of 0.93, 
95% confidence intervals of 0.6 to 1.44, p-value 0.74. Venous thromboembolism, PE or any lower limb DVT was 10.4% pneumatic compression versus 9.4% control group, no different. PE alone was 0.8 versus 1%, no different. 90-day mortality was 26.1 versus 26.7, no different, no difference in skin lesions, no difference across subgroups and sensitivity analysis. So, overall, the results of this well-designed trial do not support the routine addition of intermittent lower limb compression devices to pharmacological thromboprophylaxis for prevention of lower limb DVT. Limitations include it was non-blinded, and that there was a lower than expected incidence of the primary outcome, but great study. Let's stick with the New England Journal of Medicine and another study called PREVENT, just to confuse us in the same month, but this is bag mask ventilation during tracheal intubation of critically ill adults. So whether bag mask ventilation of critically ill adults during the 45 to 90 second interval between induction and intubation prevents hypoxia without increasing the risk of gastric or oropharyngeal aspiration has been debated for nearly 50 years. The dogma that we shouldn't manually ventilate during this period has been drummed into all of us. The preventing hypoxia with manual ventilation during endotracheal intubation trial was a multi-center parallel group unblinded, pragmatic RCT in seven ICUs in the US. The details, 401 adults undergoing induction and tracheal intubation in ICU were enrolled. Exclusion included requirement for BMV due to hypoxia and increased risk of aspiration. In terms of the trial groups, the BMV group received ventilation between induction and intubation and staff were trained in this in terms of oxygen flow, the PEEP valve, use of oropharyngeal airways, two-hand ventilation, 10 breaths per minute, smallest volume required to generate visible chest rise. The no BMV group were not permitted to have bag mask ventilation except after failed laryngoscopy was attempt or treatment for hypoxia or if the clinician determined it was necessary for safety. NIV wasn't allowed. So what did they find? Well, there was more pre-oxygenation in the no-vent group. There was no difference in SATs at the time of induction. And 98% in each group received neuromuscular blockers. 99.5% of the bag mask ventilation group actually received bag mask ventilation, which is good. And only 2.5% in the no-ventilation group. So they certainly got treatment separation. The median induction to intubation time was 98 seconds in the bag mask group and 72 seconds in the no vent group. So the no vent group went for laryngoscopy more quickly. Uh, there were similar airway maneuvers between the groups. The primary outcome, which is median lowest SATs in the period from induction to two minutes after tracheal intubation was 96% SATs in the bag mask group versus 93% in the no vent group and that's a p-value 0.01. The mean difference in the lowest SATs between the groups was 4.7% between the groups after adjustment for covariates and with in-unit correlation. In pre-specified subgroup analysis, the mean difference in lowest SATs between the BMV and no-vent group 
was greater for patients with lower oxygen saturation and induction, a p-value of 0.01 for interaction. The secondary outcome was incidence of severe hypoxia, defined as SATs less than 80%, and that was 11% in the BNV group versus 23% in the NOVENT group with a relative risk of 0.48. There was no difference in operator reported aspiration, new opacity on chest x-ray in subsequent 48 hours, or post-intubation vasopressors, severe hypertension or cardiac arrest, no difference in ventilator free days or death. So, the use of BMV in the interval between induction and intubation in critically ill adults resulted in higher median oxygen saturation, less severe hypoxia, and no adverse events, in particular aspiration. It is worth noting the careful BMV technique was careful. The longer interval to intubation, perhaps they felt they had more time when they were bag mask inflated, and the lack of evidence of benefit in terms of ICU, hospital or patient outcomes. But surely this means the dogma of apneic induction between induction and intubation has been busted. Let's go back to the JAMA. The effect of IV Panadol versus placebo combined with propofol or dexmedetomidine on post-operative delirium among older patients following cardiac surgery. So this is a kind of unusual but an interesting study. It's an RCT of 120 cardiac surgery patients aged over 60 years of age. And it looks at the effects of Panadol, propofol and dexmedetomidine on post-operative delirium. And it, they compared scheduled IV Panadol plus IV Propofol versus scheduled IV Placebo and IV Propofol, scheduled IV Panadol and Dexmedetomidine, and scheduled IV Placebo and Dexmedetomidine, and they were randomised one to one to one to one. And the Propofol or Dexmedetomidine were commenced on chest closure and continued for up to six hours or until extubation. The groups were similar at baseline, and the primary outcome was the incidence of post-operative in hospital delirium at any time during the hospital stay. And it was in the analgesia groups, 10% in the Panadol group compared to 28% in the placebo group. And in the sedative group, 17% in the dexmedetomidine group versus 21% in the propofol group. That it wasn't different for the sedative group. In terms of secondary outcomes, days with delirium were lower in the Panadol versus placebo group, but not in the dexmedetomidine versus placebo group. The total morphine use in 48 hours was uh, post-surgery was lower in the Panadol group and the dexmedetomidine group. The ICU length of stay decreased in the Panadol versus placebo group, 29 versus 46 hours, and there was no difference in hospital length of stay. So in older patients undergoing cardiac surgery, post-operative use of scheduled IV Panadol combined with IV propofol or dexmedetomidine may reduce the incidence of post-operative delirium. And this is single centre, so these results would have to be confirmed in a larger multi-centre trial, but still, it's interesting. Uh, again in JAMA, we have the Andromeda shock study. Um, effect of a resuscitation strategy targeting peripheral perfusion status versus serum lactate levels on 28-day mortality among patients with septic shock. 
So should we use repeat lactate measurements to guide resuscitation in septic shock? Are there other measures of perfusion, such as capillary refill time, that may guide resuscitation and improve outcome? This RCT uh, enrolled 424 patients and was conducted in Argentina, Chile, Colombia, Ecuador and Uruguay. The patients had early septic shock, that is a lactate greater than 2, with vasopressors to maintain a MAP greater than 65 after at least 20 mls per kilo of fluid and enrolled within 48 hours of, sorry, within 4 hours of reaching the criteria. And they compared two 8-hour strategies, the peripheral perfusion targeted resuscitation to the lactate level targeted resuscitation. Peripheral perfusion was capillary refill time. It was measured by applying firm pressure to the ventral surface of the right index finger distal phalanx with a glass microscope slide. The pressure was increased until the skin was blanched and then maintained for 10 seconds. The time for return of the normal skin colour was registered with a chronometer and a refill time greater than 3 seconds was defined as abnormal. It was assessed every 30 minutes with a goal to normalise it. Lactate level was assessed every 2 hours with a goal to normalise or reduce by 20% every 2 hours. After enrolment, participants were assessed for fluid responsiveness, then vasopressors administered, then an indicated test, which is low-dose dobutamine delivered. Otherwise, SSG guidelines were initiated. The sample size of 420 was based on 90% power to detect a difference in 28-day mortality from baseline of 45% to 30%. That is a 33% relative risk decrease. It's a pretty big risk. The results, baseline was similar, 35% abdosepsis, about 30% pneumonia. Adherence to protocol on 86% of the peripheral perfusion group and 89% in the lactate group. Lactate levels were lower at 48 and 72 hours in the peripheral perfusion group, but there was no difference at 2, 4, 8 and 24 hours. CRT levels were lower in the peripheral perfusion group in the 4, 8 and 24 hours. The primary outcome was 28-day mortality and it was 34.9% in the peripheral perfusion group versus 43.4% in the lactate level and that was not significant. Participants in the perfusion arm received less fluid at 72 hours, had less organ dysfunction at 72 hours. In terms of pre-specified analysis by SofaScore, it revealed a reduced risk of death at 28 days in the peripheral versus the lactate group with a relative risk of 0.46. So overall, a peripheral perfusion resuscitation strategy uh, designed around capillary refill time was not superior to a lactate-based resuscitation strategy. But there are other questions. Firstly, expecting to find a 33% decrease in risk seems pretty ambitious. So this study was underpowered. The study was not blinded. Is there sufficient evidence to justify titration of interventions to alter markers of tissue perfusion? Do these markers respond predictably and in a known timescale to treatments? Is improvement of perfusion markers always associated with improved outcome? This study uses capillary refill time and established it was feasible, just not superior to lactate. Should we look further at this? Uh, because it's an easy to use early marker. So I think we might see more on this. Well, that's it for the February 
Journal Club for Critique in 2019. Come to the website, have a look around. Otherwise, we will see you again next month. Thank you. I cannot remember anything you say